0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: I have only one question for Mr. Mellon. 27 parts. Well, i like to break him in 27 parts. Excuse me? No, oh, nothing, nothing. Discuss the foundations of modern global business systems, part one. Define and differentiate the three economic philosophies of capitalism, socialism, and communism as pertains to A. Management fundamentals, B. Organizing and staffing, C, labor management, and D, production and operations. Part two. Are you getting all this, Mr. Mellon? Yeah, it's a piece of cake.
2: Good morning, London. It is Thursday, October 30th, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right.
1: Fade into color, color to black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright.
2: And welcome to the show today, where we'll be dealing with a number of subjects, including a few of your emails that you've been sending in. We'll be answering uh, an email by Zachary, who had some questions on uh, my my statements on gun control and the right to gun ownership. We'll be doing that later in the show. A few other emails we've got sent in that we'll try to integrate into today's show. But the general theme of today's show is going to be uh, economic, and, of course, uh, one of the things I haven't even talked about ever on this show, believe it or not is the U.S. election. I've talked about it peripherally, on the side here and there, but never really got into it. So we'll be talking about that today, including hearing some interesting outtakes from the last and the third uh, uh, presidential election in the U.S. But first, I want to let you in on something. 519-661-3600 is the open line number you can call if you've got any comments today. It is also the number you can call to make a pledge or a donation to CHRW Radio which is this week running a fund drive because that's part of the way this station gets funded and of course they want to improve their uh their range and and increase the uh you know the 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 distance that we can reach with this signal really interesting uh, just two days ago on tuesday i had to go to uh cts network again in in burlington Uh, which you'll hear a clip from again later in the show. But as I was driving down the highway, I'm clicking around on my radio, and sure enough, I hear this beautiful song by Ella Fitzgerald. And what am I listening to? I'm listening to CHRW, and I'm just outside of Brantford on Highway 403, which is amazing. And then just a little past that, the signal cut. So we need to get that uh, aerial maybe up a couple more inches because I know FM travels in straight lines. I have a friend in Toronto, believe it or not, who can pick up the FM signal of CHRW from his 26th floor apartment on a Grindig receiver in downtown Toronto, just blocks away from the CN tower. Down on the ground you can't, but up in the air I guess you can. So it's funny those waves, er, you know, FM waves go a long way, but they travel in straight lines. So today on the show, where shall we start? I wanted to, I, I guess my first theme is, you know, I just got so frustrated this week listening to all the talk on the radio and in the news and all around about the economic situation, politics in general, and and uh, gas prices came up again and arguing about profits and all this stuff. And I guess the thing that got me started on this, and I'm starting to think, you know, politicians. R- you know they rule us, but they don't understand economics. It's just stunning, and I think the public gets pulled in with it too. Uh, for example, last week I heard people on radio talk shows complaining about, uh, and and in fact this was in the news. One of the stations reporting quote absolute rip off by oil companies, as if it were some indisputable fact. And the purported proof of this rip off, of course, was a hundred percent increase in oil company profits in the previous quarter. Nothing else, just that. We had a big profit, so it must be a ripoff, right? Everyone was falling over themselves to heap moral scorn on the oil companies, union reps, politicians, and the media and public alike. And if there's one thing that struck home to me, it was this: you know, the, the lack of knowledge about basic economics is dramatic. I think we've got to start introducing some of the basic principles of economics at the grade level of schools. Basic things like supply and demand, which, believe it or not, I was never even exposed to until high school and and college, which is like learning how to read that late in life. I think the irony of everyone's complaint was just as they're reporting the 100% increase in oil profits, the price of gas is lower than we've experienced in many, many, many months. So, you know, to add insult to injury, most people don't even know where their interest lies in the debate, which is always with prices. That's what you should be focused on. And not with profits. That's somebody else's interest. You know, one gets the feeling that uh, people would not complain if the price of a of a, of a of a of a liter of gas, say, was two buck, two dollars oh. and fifty cents, just as long as oil companies were breaking even or losing money. They all think uh, it, it's just that economic belief, and you hear it about everything, even with people wanting the government to bail out companies, you know. They th- they all think the function of corporations is to, quote, provide jobs, and no one thinks that they're there to create products for people who want to buy them. And production almost becomes irrelevant to most of them. They, they think the government can create or save jobs, oblivious to the fact that every penny a government spends on one person, it has to take away from another person. Interestingly, everyone seems to naively believe that prices are determined by the cost of production, and therefore prices should only be marginally higher than costs. Anything more than this is, well, it's a rip-off, right? And uh, i got to say, this childlike view dominates all economic discussion in our popular media. So much so, I saw, just clipping yesterday, in the, um, in the Londoner, did you see that ad that said, Ontario independent pharmacists are going out of business? Big sign there and basically what they're asking is, and listen to this last sentence, stop the government from making decisions about our health care based on cost. If we don't, we'll all pay with our health. Well, it works that way with oil and with all sorts of things. Cost is not the factor. Um, Profit determines whether something gets made, but it's not the issue. Somebody might be selling you something at a very expensive price and losing money at it, and so why do you care about the profit so much? Of course, prices have very little to do with the cost of production, except in that one respect. They determine whether that production will take place or not. If I can't afford uh, to buy a person's product at a certain price where they'd have to put it, then that product simply won't get made, even though it might be technically possible to do so. Now, here's another little, this is sort of a parable. This was sent to me by listener Danielle who said uh, she thought I might like this and I did and I thought it made an interesting little story. It actually originated, it's been circulating I guess, uh, and it actually originated out of the University of Georgia from David R. Camerson, PhD professor of economics, and he tells this little story which sort of helps to highlight and illustrate how some people misunderstand economics and what what they read and hear in the paper. And the story goes like this. Suppose that every day ten men go out for a beer and the bill for all ten comes to a hundred bucks. Pretty easy, eh? Ten, ten, ten. But if they paid their bill the way we pay our taxes, it would go something like this. The first four men, the poorest, would pay nothing. The fifth would pay one dollar. The sixth would pay three dollars. The seventh would pay seven. The eighth would pay twelve. The ninth would pay eighteen. And the tenth man, the richest man, would pay fifty-nine dollars. So that's what they decided to do. And by the way, I checked, that all adds up to 100, okay? So it does work out. The 10 men drank in the bar every day and seemed quite happy with the arrangement until one day the owner threw him a curve. Since you're all such good customers, he said, I'm going to reduce the cost of your daily beer by $20. Drinks for the 10 now cost just $80. The group still wanted to pay their bill the way we pay our taxes, so the first four men were unaffected. They would still drink for free. But what about the other six men, the paying customers? How could they divide the $20 windfall so that everyone would get his, quote, fair share, end quote? They realized that $20 divided by six is $3.33. But if they subtracted that from everyone's share, then the fifth man and the sixth man would each end up being paid to drink his beer. That's because, of course, if you go back to that, the fifth is paying a dollar, and the sixth is paying three, so if you're paying, giving them back 3.33, one guy gets a free beer plus 2.33, and the other guy gets a free beer plus 33 cents. So obviously you can't do that. So the bar owner suggested that it would be fair to reduce each man's bill by roughly the same amount, and he proceeded to work out the amounts each should pay. And so the fifth man, like the first four, now paid nothing, which was 100% savings for him. The sixth man now paid $2 instead of $3, which was a 33% saving. The seventh now $5 instead of 7, the eighth 9 instead of 12, the ninth 14 instead of 18, and the tenth 49 instead of $59. And each one has a decreasing percentage of savings. In fact, the guy who saved uh, the $10 only has a 16% savings, whereas the guys in the bottom are up at the 28% and higher. Each of the six was better off before, and the first four continued to drink for free. But once outside the restaurant, the men began, began to compare their savings. I only got a dollar out of the twenty, declared the sixth man. He pointed to the tenth man, but he got ten dollars. Yeah, that's right, ex- explained the fifth man. I only saved a dollar, too. It's unfair that he got ten times more than I got. That's true, shouted the seventh man. Why should, I, why should he get ten dollars back when I only get two? The wealthy get all the breaks. Wait a minute, yelled the first four men in unison. We didn't get anything at all. The system exploits the poor. The nine men surrounded the tenth and beat him up. The next night, the tenth men didn't show up for drinks, so the nine sat down and had beers without him. But when it came time to pay the bill, they discovered something important. They didn't have enough money between all of them for even half of the bill. And that, ladies and gentlemen, journalists and college professors, is how our tax system works the people who pay the highest taxes get the most benefit from a tax reduction. Tax them too much, attack them for being wealthy, and they just may not show up anymore. In fact, they might start drinking overseas where the atmosphere is somewhat friendlier, end quote. And that's from David Camerson, Ph.D. down at the University of Georgia. And it does sort of you know, indicate on how, how people look at their share of something and, and uh, some of the confusion of actual figures with percentages. Everyone thinks they have to get their fair share. We're going to take a quick break right now. We're going to take another look at a very dangerous idea, pragmatism versus principle. There's actually a call for pragmatism and and how to handle our economic crises, and I'll explain why I disagree with that uh, implicitly and explicitly. We'll be back right after this quick break.
1: All right, settle down, people. We've got a lot to cover, and time is short. There are two kinds of people in business today. The quick and the dead. So rather than waste your time this semester with a lot of useless theories, we're going to jump right in with both feet and create a fictional company from the ground up. We'll construct our physical plant, we'll set up an efficient administrative and executive structure, then we'll manufacture our product and market it. I think you'll find it very interesting and a lot of fun. So let's start by looking at construction costs of our new factory. Uh, what's the product? That is immaterial for the purposes of our discussion here. But if it makes you happy, let's say we're making tape recorders. Tape recorders? Are you kidding? The Japs will kill us on a labor course. Okay, fine. Then let's just say they're widgets. What's a widget? It's a fictional product. It doesn't
3: matter. What does it matter? Tell that to the bank, take you know? Take it easy, take it easy. It's the first day, you know.
1: On the board, you will see a cost analysis for construction of a 30,000 square foot facility, which will encompass both factory and office space, and is fully serviced by all utilities, a railroad spur line, and a four-bay shipping dock. Hold on, hold on. Why, Bill? You're better off leasing at a buck and a quarter, a buck and a half a square foot. Take your down payment and put it into CDs, or something else you can roll over every couple of months. Thank you, Mr. Mellon. But we'll be concentrating on finance a little later in the term. For the time being, let's just concentrate on the construction figures, shall we? You will see the final bottom line requires the factoring in of not just the material and construction costs, but also the architect's fees and the costs of land servicing. Oh, you left out a bunch of stuff. Oh, really? Like what, for instance? Well, first of all, you're going to have to grease the local politicians for the sudden zoning problems that always come up. That is the kickbacks to the carpenters. And if you plan on using any cement in this building, I'm sure the team should like to have a little chat with you. And that'll cost you. Oh, and don't forget a little something for the building inspectors. Then there's a long-term cost, such as waste disposal. I don't know if you're familiar with who runs that business, but I assure you it's not the Boy Scouts. That'll be quite enough, Mr. Mellon. Maybe bribes and kickbacks and mafia payoffs are how you do business. But they are not part of the legitimate business world. And they're certainly not part of anything I'm teaching in this class. Do I make myself clear? Sorry, just trying to help, that's all. Now, notwithstanding Mr. Mellon's input, the next question for us is where to build our factory? How about Fantasyland?
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, how about Fantasyland? Maybe we should take a visit there right now, and that's what we'll do. But first, I want to remind you again, 519 661 is the number to call if you want to join the conversation or leave a pledge or a donation to CHRW, which is running its pledge drive this week. And which, of course, gives us all the opportunity to do this kind of radio for you. Now, saw an interesting headline in the National Post uh, the other day, October 18th, actually. And, big headline, Dangerous Ideas, okay? Written by David Layler, fellow-in-residence at the C.D. Howe Institute. And the subheading read, Canadian authorities should shun ideas at both ends of the ideological spectrum and remain pragmatic, end quote. So I'll read that to you, and I'll tell you what I think about it. I just picked out the main parts of this. It was a huge article. I I, I boiled it down to these basic arguments that I want to deal with. And here's what he writes. Quote, Some very dangerous ideas are beginning to circulate. Namely, that financial markets not only need immediate government help to get going again, but continuous supervision thereafter. Perhaps the most dangerous of today's ideas is that it is possible to design a financial system that will promote economic efficiency but never again generate a crisis like the current one. As discussions of financial system reforms proceed over the next few years, therefore, they should pay more attention to improving mechanisms for dealing with the effects of crises, than to vainly pursue allegedly surefire methods of preventing them. This is not to argue for letting nature take its course during the current crisis. That markets always function, an idea assiduously taught in many business schools for decades, is also dangerous and all too influential. In a financial crisis, each institution tries to look after itself by piling up stocks of safe marketable assets, liquidity, and if that requires to st- a stop to lending, so be it. But when such a response becomes system-wide, there is no market cure for what ensues. Fears of the onset of socialism must not inhibit policy. Capitalism is fine when it's working, but to do so it needs a functioning financial system to do whatever is needed to ensure that a system's continued existence is a matter of good government. Canadian authorities should shun dangerous ideas at both ends of the ideological spectrum and remain pragmatic. The Bank of Canada should provide the liquidity the financial system needs, and if output and inflation are now set to fall, it should also ease monetary policy by all feasible means to keep inflation on its 2% track." End quote. Now he says, you know, he says that capitalism is fine when it's working, but no it isn't. He hates capitalism, and that's pretty obvious from what he says. Um, he, the markets don't work. This, you know, I guess that's a matter of interpretation, but how could I put this? You know, there was an episode of, Ma- of the TV series MASH, you know, the one with Alan Alda, uh, a really weird one where this injured soldier uh, slipped into a form of self-defensive of denial of some sort, and he actually believed that he was Jesus Christ. And he kind of creeped you out because he played the role so well and he said everything you would expect Christ to say. But things weren't going so well for him, and and at one point someone asked him, I imagine it was one of the doctors or maybe the psychiatrist, I don't remember all the details, but he asked a question that went something like this. I'm just going by memory here. He says, he asked, does God answer all of our prayers? And the guy replied, he says, yes, he says, God does answer all our prayers, but sometimes the answer is no. And You know, I I remember that to this day because it goes beyond the religious symbolism of it because let's apply it to, to this situation. Do markets always function? Yeah, but sometimes the answer is failure and bankruptcy. These are not evidence of a market that's not working, but one that is working. It's weeding out the economic losers and rewarding the winners. That's what it does, right? It rewards those who acknowledge reality, and it punishes those who do not acknowledge reality. And these are the two ends of the ideological spectrum that uh, Mr. Laidler is really talking about. Now, this guy really wants a bailout system, and he wants government to put all of our earnings on the line to support it. And that's why he appeals to pragmatism. That's what it's all about. By definition, pragmatism is not principle. In fact, we dealt with this in detail on another show, and it started off even with my, my uh, um, encyclopedia definition talking about pragmatism being anti-intellectual. But pragmatism mixes right and wrong, good and evil, uses completely contradictory terms and economic terms, and is a call for utter subjectivism. If you were to put such a system in place, think about it, Where would be the incentive to invest wisely if one is always bailed out when making irrational decisions? How do you get punished? Who's going to punish you if not the marketplace? You know, especially if you're not going to do anything about preventing a future crisis. Talk about an open invitation to crisis. And, you know, first, Layler has denied that any knowledge is possible with respect to preventing market crises. And, of course, there is. It's called 100% reserve. We've talked about it on this show a lot of times. Uh, but somehow, knowledge to a remedy a market crisis is valid, according to him. Government bailouts, that works all the time, you know. And it's been proven to work in practice. Well, <laughs> if you've ever seen a pyramid scheme, this is exactly what these pragmatists are proposing. They just want to get their investment out and not be one of the many caught at the bottom being left holding the proverbial bag. You know the reason that so many capitalists continually or, or sorry pragmatists continually pay lip service to capitalism uh, while explicitly advocating some variant of its opposite is kind of simple. Psychologically, I think they know they couldn't possibly get away with their pragmatism if they had to come out and actually tell you the truth. Suppose I were to translate what David later just told us in what I read and, and read it this way. While I believe that you have individual rights, when my interests are threatened, your rights and your money must be sacrificed for the benefit of my interests. You must use the fiat currency that we provide, and we have a right to inflate that currency so that you can never get ahead in life and are always working to make ends meet. What's mine is mine, but what's yours is mine also. Don't be afraid of this socialist concept, because socialism isn't an idea that's ideologically extreme. It's pragmatic. Capitalism is fine when I'm winning and I'm getting mine, but it's not working when I'm not. Therefore, we will resort to the use of legalized force and fraud to take from you what would otherwise, in an extreme capitalist system, be yours. So let's be pragmatic. Give us your money. End quote. Now, do you really think he'd get away with that and anybody would buy it? No, but if he says it the way he says it, it sounds really good, almost sounds like you're getting something out of it. But instead of saying something like that, and this is just one of many similar variants I could have thought of, uh, you know, pragmatists, they go around saying that capitalism is fine, but we need government help, meaning, of course, your money, because the government has none of its own, to make capitalism work. Oh my goodness, and guess who gets smeared with this pragmatic argument, or what system gets smeared? Yeah, you guessed it, it's capitalism. So the message is, all of these hardships are being visited upon you because of capitalism. It has failed us, and it must be made to work. So to be pragmatic and to advocate a shunning of ideas at both ends of the ideological spectrum, not the political one, I noted, because uh, all the parties are on the left, it's an impossibility in practice. I think David Layler's argument proves proves the case. His argument is explicitly for socialism. For state intervention, for permanent state intervention, for a permanent expansion of the money supply, and on and on. These are all purely, extremely left, ideological, all the way, and are in no way a center or a middle of the road position. Consider: How, how are you going to ignore both sides of the debate? For example, under capitalism, property is owned privately; under socialism, property, including your money, is owned by the state. So how do you equally shun both of these ideas, or how do you equally combine them? You know, it's just like I said, you know, you own your own money until I need it, I'm, you know, until I, the pragmatist, need it. Your ownership rights are contingent on my needs. My need trumps your right. This is pragmatic altruism, both in theory and in practice. Now, consider that capitalism stands alone as the system on the one side of the ideological spectrum which is what I call the true right. Every other system is on the other side, the true left, including so-called right-wingers, by the way, who are as left as any other political opponents. We'll be talking about that when we when we get to the presidential debate in a moment. Each is competing for control of the economy, not to free it, and all that differs is the method of control they choose. Each party attempts to outspend the other with your money in an appeal to what its constituents and supporters want, and in the long run it's a lose-lose proposition, and... You know, it should not be rewarded with even more of our money. But, of course, that won't happen. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. Consider also that in Laidler's seemingly economic argument, it sounds like he's making an economic argument, but he's philosophically calling directly for an obliteration of philosophy. Boy, contradictions galore. I tell you, uh, you read this kind of stuff, and uh, it kind of is scary. So welcome to pragmatism. Now, on to the subject that uh, I've avoided, like the plague, and that's the U.S. presidential election. I haven't really dealt with it yet, and I know it's coming up on Tuesday, so I felt uh, maybe the first thing we should do before we get into this, this has been what they called a pretty dirty election, and there was a lot of uh, infighting and backbiting and all that kind of stuff. So what I've done is I've taken some tight edits. Now, this is not exactly how it was originally broadcast from the third presidential debate, which was um, uh, broadcast October 15th, okay? So uh, these were just tightened up to the to the basic points, these edits. So uh, we'll leave you here for a moment. We're also going to be taking a break. When we come back, you'll be hearing a few more edits from the presidential debate. So we'll be back in about, oh, seven or eight minutes after this, and then we'll carry on. We'll...
0: Uh, And the topic is leadership in this campaign. Both of you pledged to take the high road in this campaign, yet it has turned very nasty. Senator Obama, your campaign has used words like erratic, out of touch, lie, angry, losing his bearings to describe Senator McCain. Senator McCain, your commercials have included words like disrespectful, dangerous, dishonorable, he lied. Your running mate said he piled around with terrorists. Are each of you tonight willing to sit at this table and say to each other's face what your campaigns and the people uh, in your campaigns have said about each other? And Senator McCain, you're first. Well, this has been a tough campaign. It's been a very tough campaign. So I think the tone of this campaign could have been very different. And the fact is, it's gotten pretty tough. And I regret some of the negative aspects of both campaigns. But the fact is... That it has taken many turns, which I think are unacceptable. One of them happened just the other day when a man I admire and respect—I've written about him, Congressman John Lewis, an American hero—made allegations that Sarah Palin and I were somehow associated with the worst chapter in American history: segregation, deaths of children in church bombings, George Wallace. That—that uh, that to me was so hurtful. And, Senator Obama, you didn't repudiate those remarks. Every time there's been an out-of-bounds remark made by a Republican, no matter where they are, I have repudiated them. I hope that Senator Obama will repudiate those remarks that were made by Congressman John Lewis. Very unfair and totally inappropriate. So, I want to tell you, we will run a truthful campaign. This is a tough campaign. And it's a matter of fact that Senator Obama has spent more money on negative ads than any political campaign in history and i can prove it and senator obama when he said and he signed a piece of paper that said he would take public financing for his campaign if i did that was back when he was a long shot candidate you didn't keep your word and we looked into the camera and debate with senator clinton and said i will sit down and negotiate with john mccain about public financing before i make a decision he didn't tell the american people the truth Because you didn't, and that's 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 an unfortunate part. Now we have the highest spending by Senator Obama's campaign than any time since Watergate.
5: All right. Well, look, uh, you know, I think that we expect presidential campaigns to be tough. Uh, I think that if you look at the record and the impressions of the American people, Bob, your uh, network just did a poll uh, showing that. Two-thirds of the American people think that Senator McCain's running a negative campaign uh, versus one-third of mine. And a hundred percent, John, of your ads, a hundred percent of them have been negative. It's well, it, it absolutely is true. Uh, and and now I think the American people are less interested in our hurt feelings during the course of the campaign than addressing the issues that matter to them so deeply. And there is nothing wrong with us having a Vigorous debate, like we're having tonight, about health care, about uh, energy policy, about tax policy. That's the stuff that campaigns should be made of. Uh, I don't mind being attacked for the next three weeks. Uh, what the American people can't afford, though, is four more years of failed economic policies. And what they deserve over the next four weeks is that we talk about what's most pressing to them. But it, it requires, I think, a recognition that politics as usual has been practiced over the last several years is not solving the big problems here in America.
0: Well, if you'll turn on the television as I I watched the Arizona Cardinals defeat the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday. Every other ad, every other ad was an attack ad on my health care plan. And any objective observer has said it's not true. You're running ads right now that say that I oppose federal funding for stem cell research. I don't. You're running ads that, that misportray completely my position on immigration. So, uh, the fact is that Senator Obama is spending unprecedented, unprecedented in the history of American politics, going back to the beginning, amounts of money in negative attack ads on me.
5: Uh, uh, what I think is most important uh, is that we recognize that to solve the key problems that we're facing, if we're going to solve two wars, the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression, if uh, if we're going to focus on lifting wages that have declined over the last eight years and create jobs here in America, then Democrats, Independents, and Republicans, we're going to have to be able to work together. And what is important is making sure that we disagree without being disagreeable, and it means that we can have tough, vigorous debates around issues. What we can't do, I think, is try to characterize each other as bad people, uh, and that well, has been a culture in Washington, but that's been taking place for too long. And I think, well, Donna, you I think asked me a direct question. Short about, oh yeah, short real
0: quick, uh, Mr. Harris, I don't care about an old washed-up terrorist. But as Senator Clinton said in her debates with you, we need to know the full extent of that relationship. We need to know the full extent of Senator Obama's relationship with ACORN, who is now on the verge of maybe perpetrating one of the greatest fraud- frauds in voter history in this country, maybe destroying the fabric of democracy. Same front outfit organization that your campaign gave $832,000 for, for, quote, lighting and, and site selection. So. All of these things need to be examined, of course. I'm going to let you respond, extend this. It's going
5: to be important to just... I'll respond to these two particular allegations that Senator McCain's made that have gotten a lot of attention. In fact, uh, Mr. Ayers uh, has become the centerpiece of Senator McCain's campaign over the last two or three weeks. Uh, This has been their primary focus. So let's get the record straight. Uh, Bill Ayers is a professor of education uh, in Chicago. Forty years ago, when I was eight years old, he engaged in despicable acts with a radical domestic group. Uh, I have roundly condemned those acts. Uh, Mr. Ayers is not involved in my campaign. He uh, has never been involved in this campaign. And he will not advise me in the White House. So that's Mr. Ayers. Now, with respect to ACORN, uh, ACORN is a community organization. Apparently, what they've done is they were paying people to go out and register folks, and uh, uh, apparently some of the people who were out there didn't really register people, they just pilled out a bunch of names. had nothing to do with us. We were not involved, and I, I think the fact that this has become such an important part of your campaign, Senator McCain, says more about your campaign than it says about me.
0: Well, again, while you were on the board of the Woods Foundation, you and Mr. Ayers together, you sent $230,000 to ACORN. so uh, And you launched your political campaign in Mr. Ayers' living room. That's absolutely not and, true. Uh, and the facts are facts and records are and records. And that's not the, and it's not the fact. And it's not the fact that Senator Obama chose to t- associate with a guy who in 2001 said that he wished he'd bomb more and he had a long association with him, it's the fact that all, the fa- all of the uh, details need to be known about Senator Obama's relationship with them and with ACORN, and the American people will make a judgment.
2: Welcome back. Oh, boy, what a mess, eh? Talk about a mud-slinging campaign. Those were excerpts, by the way, from the October 15th, 3rd presidential debate. Uh, as I got them off ABC television, Interesting to hear some of the arguments being made, just, uh, you know, name-calling back and forth, accusations based on associations. Um, some interesting comments, too, you know, where where Obama says, well, nobody's bad. We can disagree without being disagreeable. And, you know, they're using the, the word negative, negative campaigning, when what they're really talking about is open lies, fraud, and false campaigning. That negative campaigning is okay. You're supposed to have negative campaigning. You're supposed to point out the negative aspects of your opponent. But you should never lie about them. And unfortunately, because we're also politically correct, we really don't come out and say exactly what we think. But, uh, you know, everyone's talking like the American election's a done deal, that we can expect Barack Obama to be the next U.S. president. And if you've been watching CNN lately, you might be wondering just who the candidate for the Republican actually is. Yet, you know, at the same time, just seven days ago in the London Free Press, here's a headline. Presidential race dead heat, which reported polling results for Democrat Barack Obama at 44% and Republican John McCain at 43%. The Associated Press GFK poll showed John McCain gaining among whites and people earning less than fifty thousand dollars. Now that's interesting that McCain would gain uh, in the lower income groups more than Obama would. And of course Toronto Sun columnist Salim Mansour has been a guest on this show has written more than once warning not to underestimate middle America whom he does not believe will support Obama. I remember when Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan had it out for the presidency And prior to that election, uh, that Reagan won in a landslide, all the bets were on Carter. The media had declared Carter the winner of the televised debate, which I watched even though Reagan slaughtered Carter on each and every point, you know. Well, (laughs) and how could you not win with that approach? But today... The U.S. presidential Republican campaign for John McCain is kind of like watching John Tories, you know, I'm, I'm not a Mike Harris conservative campaign, in which the key objective for the candidate is to distance himself from his own party and his own party's record. And, uh, you know, when you have to do that, it's extraordinarily poor optics and, and, and puts a, a handicap on you to begin with. Whichever party wins the U.S. election, uh, and... Personally, I'm past caring, really. It looks like we're all in for hard times. Uh, Americans are allowing themselves to be swept away by emotion, irrational emotion for the most part, believing that events which are clearly outside the ability of politicians to affect, I mean, even things like weather and the economy, will somehow be affected by whom they elect. And the real things that they can control are talked about only on a very superficial level which is kind of normal, you know, a normal situation for elections, and that's why Kim Campbell got in so much trouble for saying elections are not a time to debate the issues. They aren't. That's when you state where you stand. The debates occur now, between elections. Now, you know, know, in one sense, I'm glad that Barack Obama is running, since one might assume that this could put the race issue behind us. But then again, you never know. This might be the start of a whole new racial debate over again, depending on on how well Obama does if he does get elected as president and how he performs. Uh, Interesting, I was watching CNN News on October 24th, and Senator John McCain's campaign, they reported, of course, accepted matching federal funds. And as a result, his campaign has spending limits on it. Now, Obama's campaign did not accept federal funding, and as a consequence, he has no spending limits on his campaign. That's why McCain was complaining about that so much. I guess Obama must have made him a promise, saying that he would do the same as McCain, and then didn't do so. And, of course, that's certainly radically different from the way it's done here in Canada, where federally, taxpayers are forced to cough up a buck seventy-five plus extras per vote per year to the political party that receives that vote and this pours millions into the coffers of the parties who get your money, and to the extent that privately owned political parties, which is what they all are, receive government funding, I don't think we can say we are actually living in a free democracy, but I'll do that as a subject on another show. What really got me going here was uh, regarding, as well, uh, real criticism of the Republican Party by none other than my uh, (laughs) good nemesis here, Eric Margolis neocons and religious right have taken over the GOP, the grand old party, he argues in London Free Press on October 26th. And he says, U.S. conservatives, America needs a reformed Republican party. And he writes about his old pal Bob, a bigwig Californian Republican who's barely on speaking terms with him. And he says Bob does macho Republican things like shoot little birds, ride Harleys, and sneer at the French. Quote, Bob says I'm picking on poor President George W. Bush and lack patriotism for not supporting W.'s war on of liberation in Afghanistan and Iraq. Worse, Bob accuses me of becoming a hey, gasp, democrat, democratic liberal. In America, liberal means lefty, and them's fighting words. I've been called a lot of things, writes Margolis, including fascist hyena, CIA agent, and right-wing warmonger. But a leftist democrat? I'm more likely to become a Hare Krishna than a liberal. Actually, he writes, I'm a rogue Republican. I've always been a moderate conservative Eisenhower Republican who believes in small government, low taxes, saving hard work, individual freedoms, and avoiding overseas adventures, end quote. Well, you know, here's where a guy like Mark Ollis makes my job all the more harder. He says, you know, he says he's in favor of these things, and this is the first I've heard of it. Yet I've seen Margolis consistently speak in defense of foreign countries and nations who explicitly do not share these values and to defend their right to avoid these values, and that's what I find interesting. But he goes on. He says he respects John McCain and believes he would make a fine president, but he showed, a t- showed terrible judgment in picking Sa- Sarah Palin as, as his vice presidential candidate and surrounding himself with a cot- cotier of extreme neocon advisers and other far-rightists who played a major role in creating the frightful foreign affairs mess the U.S. faces and making America hated around the globe. Margolis refers to Sarah Palin as, get this, an evangelical, an evangelical ultra-conservative, a woman of stunning vulgarity and ignorance, a testimony to the dumbing down of the party, I guess to compete with the Democrats, and its transformation into a populist religious movement. Barack Obama is wrong to propose raising taxes, but he's no socialist, as Palin charges. Nationalizing the nation's banks is socialist. Urging world domination is nationalist socialist. (laughs) Wow. Margolis goes on to insult specific Republicans and the Republican Party in general, accusing them of, quote, endorsing torture, assassinations, Guantanamo, secret prisons, kidnapping kangaroo courts, spying on U.S. citizens, undermining America's constitution. And then he adds... Too many cowardly Democrats joined this lynch mob. Then Margolis accuses both McCain and Palin of, quote, shamelessly stoking anti-black, anti-Muslim, and anti-foreign hatred and fear during this campaign. And he adds, and so did Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Margolis laments the fact that blacks will, quote, vote en masse for Obama because of his color. General Colin Powell did the right thing says Margolis, by breaking with McCain, denouncing racism and Islamophobia and warning of the party's lurch to the far right, end quote. Now, what I found interesting was what Margolis did not add to this sentence was Powell's endorsement of Obama, which, of course, is a black man endorsing a black man, which is what he just complained about two sentences earlier. Yet, could it not be possible that all those other blacks who are voting en masse might have gone through the same considerations that Powell did and they aren't just voting for color, maybe they're voting because they like the guy? I, I'm not going to say, say that. But uh, he he writes that today 44 to 50 percent of Republican voters call themselves born-again Christian fundamentalists who believe every word of the Bible is true. And he writes, when I hear Republican these days, the words that come to my mind are arrogance, ignorance, and just plain dumb. And now add economic disaster caused by Enron-style fraud and allowing crooks to run the nation's finances. America desperately needs a reborn, moderate Republican Party, freed from narrow-minded religious ideology and ruralism, etc., etc., etc. And he says, when that happens, I'll return to the fold when we go back to the good old days. Well, what's truly remarkable about this diatribe is that, after everything he said about Republicans, Margolis continues to call himself one, a Roe Republican which by his own definition would mean a rogue, quote, arrogant, ignorant, and just plain dumb Republican. He just said that's what Republican means, and he's still calling himself one. And it seems like his own religious and faith-based allegiance to the Republican Party, regardless of what he himself has said it has become, makes him just as religious as the people he's criticizing. By the way, it may be true that the Republican Party has attracted a religious faction, but so has the Democratic Party, which is far more associated with the character types Margolis attributed to Republicans. You may recall on a past broadcast of this show when I was taking a look at the religious makeup of North America and how people voted, we discovered that religious people do not vote religiously. (laughs) They become extraordinarily practical or worse, uh, pragmatic or certainly uh, uh, secular, that's for sure. Um, You know, and most of the religious people I know all strongly believe in a separation of church and state. And I myself have appeared regularly on religious networks, you know, like CTS, and have always advocated a secular government, and my argument's always been supported by even my most religious debate opponents. So, I'm not afraid of religious people just because they're religious, nor am I predisposed to those who claim no religion. You know, I'd rather have a Christian or an atheist capitalist in office than an atheist or Christian socialist, communist or fascist. So... You know, Words mean things. Margolis is completely dazed and confused on the subject of definitions. And you know, How can he call himself a Republican based on his own definitions? When, when the Republican Party has not cut the size of government or the rate of tax increases, not once in 75 years. He can't possibly be old enough to return to a fold that hasn't even existed in his voting lifetime. So how long does it take you know, to make people give up their beliefs? Anyways, to make this case, you'll be hearing a clip in a few seconds that was aired in January 2004 and refers to the myth that Republicans represent small government. And on the other side of this break, you'll be hearing a clip from my own appearance on the CTS television network on Tuesday this week on the line viewpoints with host Christine Williams and my opposing guest Alan Horton on the question of the right to own a gun. And then I'll respond to the email by UWO philosophy student Zachary whose concerns on this issue seem to very much echo those that I faced on that show. But first, we'll hear a bit from John Stossel, and on the other side, we'll talk a bit about gun control.
6: Myth number six,
2: Republicans shrink government. Big government is
6: not the answer. Republicans do say they'll limit spending. My administration
0: will spend what is truly needed, and not a dollar more. Republicans have always said that. Our government is too Too big, big, and and it it spends too much. much.
6: But for over 75 years, no Republican administration has cut the size of government. Since George W. Bush became president, government spending's up nearly 25 percent. And it's not just because of terrorism. The Office of Management and Budget says spending at the EPA is up 12 percent. Agriculture, 14 percent. Interior, 30 percent. Labor, 64 percent. The Department of Education, 70 percent. And the pork keeps pouring out. Even the peanut festival in Dothan, Alabama got $200,000. Yeah,
4: and this looks is great, isn't it?
6: A celebration of the peanut. The money will be used for a big arena to replace this tent. It'll house activities for seniors, they say. And there'll be room for a greased pig wrestling contest. <laughs> Republican Congressman Terry Everett, here he is in the peanut parade, got them the money. He wouldn't talk to us about it. But the locals said they like getting your money.
0: We deserve this money because we are an
6: agricultural area. But I think this man's answer is more accurate.
0: I think it's a waste of money, but if they're going to waste money, I guess it's better to waste it here than anywhere else. How y'all doing? We're doing good. How much do you We fought a war against big government, and you know
6: what? Big government won. Economist Stephen Moore is a Republican. It was Newt Gingrich 10 years ago who said we're going to make government smaller and smarter. We're tired of big government, wasteful spending. And you look at what's happened to the government in the 10 years since the Republicans took control of Congress, the government is twice as big. You Republicans are supposed to stand for smaller government. Lisa Murkowski is one of Alaska's senators.
4: We want a smaller government, but boy, I sure want more highways and more stuff whatever the stuff is.
6: I'll say. She voted for money for the Iditarod Trail, a local Y, and more than half a dozen Alaskan museums. This is 67 pages of I'd call it pork going to Alaska. And you... Oh,
4: you need to come up. You would realize it's not pork. It's all necessity.
6: Alaska gets more per person than any other state. That's big government getting bloated. Oink.
4: Because Alaska has so little. People look at at Alaska and say, well, geez, they're getting all this money. But we still have communities that are not tied into sewer and water. There are certain basic things that you've got to have.
6: Museums? Pay for your own museums.
4: Well, I'd like to be able to make a case that our museum is different. Um... But I can't.
2: It's an out-and-out attack on innocent people. That's all it is. I, I just,
3: uh, the, the, the whole philosophical idea that somehow it, we have a yeah, right to have a gun yeah. in order to protect That's not ourselves. The right. The,
2: right is to right, the right is to self-defense. If no one else had a gun and no, nothing like a gun existed... You know, I was once asked, should we have a right to own a nuclear weapon in your basement? Right? And I said, well, the answer is yes, if your neighbor has one. Okay, <laughs> and that's pr- and that's a, that's a facetious <laughs> answer. It is ridiculous. It's not answer, okay? <laughs> okay.
3: You had something you wanted to uh, reply I, I, yeah. to Robert. here. I'm going to get to you on the phone line shortly, though. So be patient with me. Right. I'll be fairly quick about this. Uh, the, philosophically, what, what Bob mentioned just prior to the break the about nuclear thing in the, the nuclear basement. thing. If your neighbor has one, then you have a right to have <laughs> one in your basement. And I, I know, I know, <laughs> obviously you know I mean you're not literally. Right. Sure. But if I just put it, let's back it right off to a 22. If your neighbor has a 22, then you should have a 22, or you should have the right to have a 22. To me, that just increases the potential for danger and for harm to come to one of those people if they both do. Does the other one just assume the one's coming after them? If the person has one, has a gun over here, and I, okay, now I want one, the, to me, it just doubles. It increases the opportunity. for I mean, one, one will just say, okay, I might as well take a shot.
2: Now, now, see, if my neighbor has a 22, I wouldn't say I have a right to one, too. I would say I already have a right to one, because my neighbor's got one. He can't have a right that I don't have, otherwise <laughs> it wouldn't be a right. And as it is, right.
4: the criminals have that, and because I don't they're think, not going to obey, none of us have.
2: And I don't think either one of them should have a right to have either one. But you know what Okay, I've got a question that, for you, so then. What would you, to, what would you do to them? What would be the proper penalty? Mm-hmm. Okay, you come into my house, you find a handgun there. Mm-hmm. How many years should I go to jail, and for what? If you
3: shouldn't have that gun, and it's illegal to have a handgun, and there's no purpose in it, that... that you know, you're well, know no a police purpose officer. you can see, but yeah, exactly. I'm not going
2: to tell you my purpose, but you tell well, me, why, you how, t- you, me how long I should
3: have to go to jail. If you can't tell me why you have a deadly <laughs> weapon in your house, then I would say I something. Well, you know, while well, the two of them try to figure <laughs> out who's going to say what, exactly we're going to hear what you, what you and the phone lines have to say. Ken, <laughs> yes. on line 8. Hi, Ken. You're on the line.
2: <laughs> and welcome back. Uh, that was uh, broadcast live on CTS just the day before yesterday, and it fit right into the letter I got from... From Zachary, here at, uh, at the station, who writes, I'm a student at UWO, recently came across our website, uh, Just Right, and he heard the broadcast from October 9th, and he said uh, uh, that he kind of disagreed with some of my issue on the discussion of guns as a fundamental right. He, he writes, you he stated that, quote, guns serve an essential purpose of self-defense. I do not believe this to be true. Guns may serve an essential purpose of defense, but it need not be wielded by the individual. While it might be, might be the case that the possession of a gun or any sort of weapon might be a right, it is not an inalienable right. I would never prefer a state of affairs in which I was required to hold a gun to protect myself to one in which I and the majority of the members of society forfeited my right to bear arms in order that such power were controlled by the police. It is more conducive to freedom and autonomy that one would forfeit their right to, use of, to the use of force to a suitable political body so they might pursue other personal aims. It does not matter whether a person is good or bad. There is simply no rational reason to desire to have a weapon for the purpose of self-defense. To place upon an individual the responsibility of constant vigilance against those who wish to do him or her harm greatly limits his autonomy. If the interest is in a society which promotes the rationality and flourishing of individuals, why should any of these members rationally desire to own a gun and take on the additional responsibility of self-defense? Obviously, the limiting of access to guns, to the police, military, etc. raises questions about the abuse of power by political groups. However, I find this to be a completely separate issue. Even if one believes that government involvement should remain minimal, I believe the protection of individual freedom from external harm is an essential role of government. It is more important to improve the workings of the system that protects individuals than to give up on them and take it upon ourselves to use force. And that was the letter from Zachary. Uh, Thanks for the email, Zachary. I'm not going to be able to answer the whole thing today, but I'm going to get started, and we will continue with it next week, because you opened up a subject here uh, that could demand a good uh, half hour to respond to adequately. I sense from your comments you're genuinely concerned with maintaining a condition of freedom, and there are parts of your argument that I entirely agree with, and I'm a bit concerned that you should... uh, you know, think that my own position differs from yours on those points, and of course there are other points you've raised that are somewhat ambiguous, and a few that I have to disagree with outright. So we'll start now, I'll just get to one maybe, one or two before our time is up, because we've just got a couple minutes, and we will answer the rest of the points next week. I will certainly continue with that, and there are other emails I have to deal with too. But you argue that I said that guns are a fundamental right, and that's the very argument that Alan Horton in the clip we played opened with. And again, I had to correct him the same way. The fundamental right is not the right to own a gun, per se, but to self-defense. And in fact, it's even deeper than this. I have to confess I've been a little loose with my own use of the word right, as if to imply it were a thing of some sort. A more accurate and correct way of stating the issue would be to say, it is right to defend oneself when under physical attack by another. It is just to defend oneself when under physical attack by others. It is just, it is right. And, you know, hence the name of this show. (laughs) But remember, our our fists are weapons attached to the end end of our arms, and all of us are already armed in the original meaning and sense of the word, and yet how many people do we see who aren't drunk or juvenile go around and hit each other? It's almost negligible relative to the population and to the number of people who are so armed. And um, one other point I can get to before we have to close the show off. You also state that guns... Uh, you are right about me saying that guns serve an essential purpose of self-defense, and you say this isn't true, but then you say guns may serve an, a purpose of defense but need not be wielded by the individual. And that's one of those ambiguous statements where, of course, in your first sentence you state that you don't believe it to be true that guns serve self-defense, but in your second sentence you state that they serve an essential purpose of defense, of course eliminating the word self from self-defense. And that's consistent with your argument that it need not be wielded by the individual. And uh, here again, I think you're conceding that possession of a gun or any sort of weapon is a right, but not an inalienable right, which is what you said. And of course, inalienable in this context means non-transferable. And I think that this is our first major point of disagreement, because no rights are transferable. If they were, they wouldn't be rights. Or in other words... It would never be right to act in one's own self-defense once you've delegated that responsibility to someone else, be it a private security guard or the government itself. So that's just dealing with the first two points. We're going to have to wrap it up, and we will get to the rest of them, and a whole bunch more, including the article that brought the whole issue up on CTS in the first place. We'll carry on with that next week, so we hope you will enjoy us, and return next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. So until then, be right, do right, act right, stay right, take care
1: color it to black and white under the bed Everything will be.
4: No, I love my parents. I love them so much. they're so proud of me. My mom is a ventriloquist. Can you believe that? Like she could throw her voice. So when I was growing up for 10 years, I thought the dog was telling me to kill my father. I got my brother to do it. I, I wasn't going to I got my brother to do it. I I wasn't going (laughs) to...